welcome back to the first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks in quite a long time, since September the 25th, 2018, to be precise. So, if I've got this right, I've spent October, November, December, January, February, March, I've spent eight months on... I can't really say, it, it wasn't a complete hiatus, but it was a pretty comprehensive hiatus, nevertheless. There was, let me think, uh, I, th I think there were, honestly, I don't know, but I, I want to say that I didn't release more than probably about 10 or 12 episodes of Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality, just because there were certain things that I wanted to talk about and just get off my chest. And I didn't want to wait for the end of uh, my hiatus in order to do it. So that's basically how things shaped up. But I've decided it's definitely time to come back and if the theme music is anything to, uh, if that's any kind of clue for you, I would hope that <clears throat> the uh, uh, agenda here is, is kind of obvious. I just want to go back to good old fun, kind of old fashioned podcasting, at least whatever that means for me. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and so that's basically what I want to do. Now, normally I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I run the most open and confessional uh, type of podcast, you know, but I do think that you guys have some questions that, uh, well, now's probably about as good a time as any for me to answer. Specifically, why did I take the hiatus? Well, one of the reasons is, you know, guys, I was getting ready to get married. I was planning a wedding and all that fun stuff with, by the way, everything that implies, you know, just logistics. And I would say no small amount of drama, as it turns out. But, uh, you know, that's that's really where my where I thought my my attention needed to be, you know, basically focusing in on goings on with my wedding, with my personal life, with my fiance, now my wife, and not really being distracted by this deadline of having to release something new every single week. Now, I realize, I very well realize, in fact, that this deadline of meeting uh, every single week uh, you know, a new, uh, a new episode, probably talking about comics. I mean, let's just be honest about that. That's completely self-imposed. It's not like any of you pushed that on me, but it's, I don't know, for some reason, for some reason, it's like at the same time, um, this was something at least that I took seriously, at least seriously enough that between August of 2013 and September of 2018, I never missed a single week. You know, and it was kind of a point of pride for me. But this would, I thought, have been kind of an unwelcome distraction when I've got so many other things that were going on. So, hey, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to go on hiatus for a while and that'll be that. And so that's what I did. Now, yes, there were other reasons. And I don't especially want to get into what those other reasons were just because it kind of involves, here again, a little bit of drama between 
Well, actually, you know, it's not even worth going into. Point is, there's just a little bit of drama, and I didn't... I, I just was in no mood to keep podcasting back in September of last year, all right? Just put a pencil to it. So for personal reasons and for, I can't say professional reasons, um, maybe personal reasons and interpersonal reasons, I just didn't really find myself in too much of a podcasting kind of mood most of the time. So here we are. Now, as far as the wedding stuff goes, you know, guys, I got to tell you, the stereotype goes that most women have their wedding more or less gamed out by the time they're nine years old. And like, the thing is, I don't think that people recognize that, you know, maybe men haven't really invested as much time in thinking about their wedding day as women tend to do. But that doesn't mean we haven't given it any thought whatsoever. And one of the things that I'm kind of proud of is the amount of stuff that Stacy and I were able to incorporate into our wedding that I at least have wanted for my wedding for a really long time now, you know, and I can't say since I was nine years old, but certainly for a very long time. And, I, and I'm just overall really happy with the way that with the way that uh, things turned out. And just kind of to give you an, an example of what I'm talking about here, I made a playlist for the reception, okay? The idea of it was I wanted to create something, basically it, it could, it, it's music that was somewhat relevant to me or somewhat relevant to Stacy or relevant to both of us as the case may be, but I didn't want it to be distracting. You know, I wanted people to like hear it but not necessarily pay attention to it. I mean, they could pay attention to it if they wanted, but the idea was to kind of fill up this playlist with music that you can ignore. Does that make sense? Basically, I didn't want the music to be calling too much attention to itself. I just kind of wanted it to be sort of in the background, you know? And I must say, this playlist, depending on how you look at it, it was either a tremendous success or a crashing failure, but it seemed that most people, that well, I can't say most people, but a lot of people, they didn't really pay that much attention to the playlist, while other people shazammed quite a few of the uh, of the different tracks and stuff that I tossed into my playlist. And this was a playlist consisting of some kind of uh, post rock type of stuff, some film scores, a little bit of instrumental jazz, some uh, instrumental uh, surf music. Uh, did I mention film scores? Well, if I didn't mention film scores, then film scores a little bit. Uh, some synth wave, a couple of oldies, and a few other odds and ends that mean something, like I say, either to me individually, to Stacy individually, or to the two of us corporately, or whatever. And I looked around, and for a, a, quite a few of those songs, not necessarily all of them, or even most of them, but for several songs, like to me, a shocking number of songs, people were shazamming them. And I guess I figured nobody would care, but they did. So, hmm. Another kind of neat thing was the first dance, which I think is kind of a, a misnomer. It, it's kind of a misleading 
description of what Stacy and I did because you know to say that there's a first dance is to say that there were other dances and there were not. It's not that any of us are really opposed to dancing, you understand? It's just we've got a limited space to work with and there's really not much space for a dance floor. At least not a dance floor that has other people in it, like a lot of other people in it. So there's that to consider. The other thing is, you know, at most weddings, at least that I've ever been to, most people aren't dancing. So there's all these dance songs that are going on and fucking nobody's dancing. So why? Why have that? But, you know, Stacy and I knew that we both wanted to dance, so we picked out a song, and no, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but we picked out a song to which we wanted to dance, and it was just, here again, it was really nice. And so, it's not like that was the only thing. There were plenty of other things, but it's just, that's really the, I, I guess, the, the centerpiece of it. You know, that was the thing that, I, I can't say that I was most concerned about, but that was one of the things I was a little bit insistent upon, that we play this particular song and that she and I danced to it. And it's not like I had to talk Stacy into it, because believe me, I didn't. She was instantly on board with my agenda. I'm just saying that this was a priority for both of us, and I'm really happy with the way that things turned out. So, anyway. Now that it's all over, I don't mind announcing, because there's really nothing anybody can do about it, I don't mind announcing that she and I took a mini-moon to uh, Dallas. Alright, for those of you who don't know, we live in Houston. And we wanted to be, you know, for our mini-moon, we wanted to be somewhere not here. You understand? So, we tossed around a couple of ideas, and what we settled upon was Dallas. And one of the reasons for that is because I've been to Dallas quite a few times over the years, and I thought it might be kind of fun to show Stacy some of the places that I've been to, and, you know, just kind of show her the sights a little bit, and we can find some new stuff together, and... It would be quite an adventure. And quite an adventure it was. Because I don't think that the Sixth Floor Museum is necessarily like an absolute mandatory stop for tourists and stuff. But let's face it, you know, something really important happened in Dallas on November the 22nd, 1963. And there's a lot to say about it, you know. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm talking about the assassination of President Kennedy, right? There's a lot to be said about that. And so I thought, well, you know, I've, I haven't been to the Sixth Floor Museum since I was like 10 or 11 or something like that. So, you know, maybe it, it would be kind of educational to go back and just take another look. So we did. And I have to tell you guys, the... Back in the old days, when I went to the Sixth Floor Museum when I was a kid, it was basically kind of a guided tour, but mostly it was sort of like an oral presentation, you know? And yeah, you could ask questions and stuff, but basically there's a program that we're sticking with here, you're like 15 or 20 minutes in and out, and that's that, you know? So that's that was my memory of the Sixth Floor Museum. And so, imagine my surprise to show up to the Sixth Floor Museum as we did this this past weekend, or this past Monday, in fact. It, uh, this was uh, uh, Monday, uh, May the 6th. Uh, we showed up there, and man, how times have changed, all right? This is like a bona fide museum now, guys. 
they've got uh, different exhibits, uh, different stations that you can go to. There's an audio presentation that you can listen to on the headphones. They have video. They have uh, all of these different items and whatnot that are on display, some of which are a little bit creepy, to tell you the truth. A good example of what I mean is they've got Lee Harvey Oswald's wedding ring on display there. Which, I mean, you know, granted, I guess this is kind of an important piece of history, but I mean, ultimately what really matters is what Lee Harvey Oswald did or didn't do, depending on how you look at it, on November the 22nd, 1963. I mean, yeah, you know, dude was married, but it, it, is that really important to history? I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. But either way, I was kind of weirded out by the fact that these people have his wedding ring and it's on display and all that. So uh, then then there, let me think. Oh, by the way, speaking of Oswald, uh, there's this really famous uh, uh, photo of him getting shot to death by uh, Jack Ruby. And the cop to whom Oswald is handcuffed is like looking at Jack Ruby and kind of giving him the stink eye and it's just this really famous picture you can you can google it if you want but they had that cop's suit and his hat on display in the museum and they had the mannequin kind of positioned in the same way that the cop was uh, standing in that famous picture and even his arm is outstretched and you can see that there are hand that there's a set of handcuffs attached to the mannequin's wrist and the hat is turned at just the right angle to line up with that picture. And it's just, I mean, again, I guess it's kind of important to history, but it's just kind of a creepy, weird thing to find in a museum. You know, it's just, I at least wasn't expecting that. Um, another kind of bizarre item was uh, the uh, fedora that uh, Jack Ruby wore at the very moment that he pulled the trigger on Lee Harvey Oswald. And it's just like, I mean, I get it. You know, there are certain things there that are just kind of interesting, uh, you know, uh, Items of historical interest, such as uh, photographs, uh, 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 videos, uh, interviews, uh, you know, retrospective documentaries and, you know, things like that. But some of these things are, it's almost like it's murderphilia or something, or, or sorry, murderbelia. Sorry about that. Murderabilia, I think is the uh, technical term. You know, these just sort of historical oddities that were somehow tangentially involved in in crime scenes and whatnot that for some reason people are just really fascinated by and i think the whole thing is just kind of fucking creepy to tell you the truth but honestly that's not really what defined the six that's not what defines the sixth floor museum at least for me uh, one of the things that i thought was kind of handy was that instead of being focused strictly on the assassination of president kennedy it was sort of like a kind of an in-depth retrospective of his administration up to and, you know, just kind of hitting the high points of what he was up to while he was in office. And then, obviously, because it's the Sixth Floor Museum, how his presidency ended and all of that stuff. And overall, it was, uh, you know, I, th I think it was a pretty educational little thing. And I realize I'm talking at length about this quite a bit. So what I want to do is just kind of wrap up at least this part of it by saying that uh, you know, when I went to the Sixth Floor Museum as a kid, they stuck to the official story. There were three shots fired, all three of which came from the sixth floor of the school book depository in downtown Dallas 
And those were the bullets fired by Lee Harvey Oswald, which killed the president, right? That was the story that they stuck with when I was a kid. I remember that. It stood out to me. Whereas when Stacy and I went there this past Monday, as I say, they gave, I would say, just about equal time to various of the conspiracy theories and whatnot. You know, that, you know, yeah, there's a chance that Lee Harvey Oswald is everything that we heard about. He really was a lone nut, and he really did shoot a president. But there are people out there that have other opinions, and some of those opinions are these things right here. And I don't know, it's just, it, it's just kind of strange that, you know, to even acknowledge the existence of alternative theories about how President Kennedy died. That was something that the Sixth Floor Museum didn't seem to want to have any fucking thing to do with when I was a kid and visited there uh, way back when. Whereas now, they're not really pointing the finger in any particular direction. They're just saying, well, here's the official story. This is what the authorities are telling us. But this is some of the other theories that have popped up over the years, and so you can decide for yourself what you think. And, I mean, I don't know. Which way is the right way? I, I don't know. I, honestly, it's tough. it's tough to say. So, anyway, so moving away from that, one of the other things that we did uh, while we were in Dallas was we saw Endgame. Uh, again, this was on... This was on Monday. We saw Endgame, and this was a matinee showing. You know, there were basically... Basically, we... I can't say that we had the theater all to ourselves, but we... There were, really were not very many other people in there besides us. Uh, and we, you know, saw it at a studio movie grill. And, you know, guys, look. I'm the guy that's gone on the record over and over and over again saying, you know, if there's one thing a fan of anything should never do... It's make fun or deride other people in their fandom, okay? You never, ever do that. And my reason for saying that is because, you know, again, I mean, forgive me if I'm banging away at the same old drum that you've heard a thousand times, but you know what? Maybe it bears repeating that there are so fucking few things to love and cherish and get energized by in this weird crazy fucked up world that we all live in that for you to come along and take away something from somebody that they love and enjoy it's just a colossal dick thing to do i mean you just it's that's just not cool guys that is not cool and yet some people seem to do that now having said all of that i'm not picking on anybody and what i'm about to say i'm just saying this is my opinion if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm not trying to change your mind, or for that matter, change anybody else's mind. I'm just saying, this is where I'm coming from, all right? And guys, I gotta tell you, you know, I mean, I, I've heard all these stories about, you know, people getting choked up and maybe even crying a little bit in Endgame, and I just don't, I don't see it, you know? I, I, look, I don't know what movie I saw that you guys didn't, or vice versa, but I don't know what you guys are talking about, you know? I really don't. I mean... To me, this seemed like it, it was just another MCU movie, you know, with everything that implies. And you know what? For some people, what the MCU 
and everything that implies means is these are just fun and enjoyable movies. They love going to see them, and it's, it's just... It's always a blast to see the new Marvel movie. And if that's where you're coming from, dude, God bless, okay? Because, you know, like I say, the last thing I would ever want to do is take that away from you. Or or for you to think that I'm trying to take that away from you. Because I'm not. I'm just saying that I, I, I don't really get into anything to do with the MCU after the end of Phase 1. And certainly there really wasn't a whole lot about Endgame that engaged me personally. And no... I'm not going into spoilers. Now, having said that, I think I've got a perfect right to go into spoilers because uh, the directors of the fucking movie say that the moratorium on spoilers ended on uh, Monday, which, again, is uh, or was uh, May the 6th. They say, look, stroke of midnight on Monday, May the 6th, 2019, the moratorium on endgame spoilers goes bye-bye. And so... You know, I, I think I've got a right to talk about spoilers, but this is just one of those things that I just don't really care to, to do, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe someday I'll do a I'll do an episode about Endgame and why I just don't really get into it, you know, just the quibbles and uh, criticisms that I have of this movie. I mean, I just, I, I think about the last time I, I really aired my opinion about a movie, which was Superman 2. People sent me fucking death threats over that. Then, you know what? Maybe I don't want to talk too much about Endgame, but it's just, suffice it to say, I didn't get into this movie the way that other people seem to be getting into it. Now, if you love it, again, that's great. I'm happy for you. Actually, I kind of envy you, if anything. But anyway, the, the, the I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, these Marvel movies haven't really been my blend for a pretty long time now. And there's virtually nothing about Endgame to change my mind, you know? So, anyway. I'm not trying to be a contrarian or an asshole or anything like that. I'm just saying these movies are just increasingly not for me. And especially, like, if you've seen Endgame and you know the stuff that I'm talking about, this does seem like a good point, at least for me, to just kind of ride off into the sunset. I've got Marvel Phase 1 or MCU phase one. I got fucking phase one. That's the point. I got phase one that I can, you know, I can rewatch and enjoy anytime I want and then just be content with that. You know, now having said all of that, please don't get the wrong idea here. All right. Somebody tallied it all up. It wasn't me, but somebody tallied it all up. And between, like, if you figure that 20 minutes of screen time works out to just about the the length of an average comic book between feature film meaning all the shit that's come out in movie theaters all the movies in in the theaters uh tv stuff like agents of shield agent carter and all that fun stuff uh the netflix verse daredevil iron fist jessica jones and all the rest between all of those things, that basically, if you were to basically create comic equivalents of all that stuff, it basically works out to, I shit you not, nine hundred pages of comics. And just to put that in perspective, that is an entire age of comics, a la the Bronze Age, all right? That is like an actual age of comics 
those are some there's a huge fucking story that's being told here and you know I freely admit that there are huge parts of this story that just don't really work for me and I I make no secret of that I make no apology for that but I do very much respect the fact that somebody invested a shit ton of work and time and planning, blood, sweat, tears, money, let's not overlook the obvious, into telling basically one gigantically fucking huge story, all right? Again, I don't think that you should... I, I don't think that I have to be a fan of all of this material in order to say that, man, that is a colossal effort, the likes of which... I don't think we'll ever see again. Even from Marvel, guys, I don't think Marvel is ever gonna be able to pull something like this off ever again. So, kudos and kudos again to everybody who's involved with the MCU. That is one hell of an ambitious story that was told. And even if every single chapter of it wasn't necessarily to my liking, it's still pretty good. You know, the stuff that I enjoyed of it, it was still pretty good. And I can at least admire this from sort of a technical standpoint, which is, in some cases, that's really about the only praise I can give some of it. So, anyway, all of this is kind of a long way into introducing today's subject, which specifically is the New Avengers. Now, the episode that you're about to hear, I actually recorded quite a long time ago, but I decided, you know what, hell with it. I'm just going to go ahead and delete uh, the original, much shorter introduction to this episode that I recorded in the first place and replace it with what you're hearing right now. Basically so that, you know, we can kind of get things back on track a little bit. I wanted to kind of update you guys on goings on with me for whatever that's worth. And there you go. So I'm going to pass the microphone over to myself so that I can talk to you guys about the New Avengers, Volume 1, Number 7, so enjoy. Guys, this isn't going to be breaking news, I don't think, to really any of you, unless this is your first episode, but I don't think this is going to be breaking news to very many of the rest of you, that the majority of the comics that I've talked about on this show have been DC comics, right? And honestly, I mean, it's not like there's any kind of deep, dark conspiracy going on with that. It's just that the simple fact of the matter is that when push comes to shove, I really am a DC guy. I mean, there are Marvel characters that I like, but this idea of being a fan of the Marvel Universe, I've just never really been that guy. You know, I don't really know a whole lot about Marvel. And honestly, even the characters that, even the Marvel characters that I like, it's not like I'm an authority on any of those characters. And, you know, I, I guess in the in the grand scheme of things, I haven't read all that many Marvel comics as compared to some of you listeners. And so I thought, you know, this, I don't know, this could be a good opportunity to sort of balance things out a little bit, you know? Talk about a, uh, talk about a Marvel comic book and go outside of my comfort, my comfort zone a little bit, you know? So that's what I'm going to be doing today. Because today... I'm going to be talking about The New Avengers, Volume 1, Number 7. Now, in a previous episode, I talked about uh, the first six issues of, of uh, the 
of the uh, New Avengers. And that was way back in episode number 159. I talked about uh, the storyline entitled Breakout. And basically what it came down to was this title, The New Avengers, this title ended up being not exactly the perfect introduction to the Marvel Universe, but it was still a good introduction to the Marvel Universe because there are a lot of familiar characters especially these days. A lot of these characters really have gotten a lot of exposure in the last few years. But at least at the time that I started reading The New Avengers, it was a it was a good way to meet sort of a cross-section of characters and become, I guess, a little bit more familiar with them, you know? And then as now, I kind of regard The New Avengers as a, as a good option for that, you know? So um, I want to say it was probably like, geez, like 2011 or or. 2012, it was something like that, when I sat down and read not all of the New Avengers Volume 1, but a pretty big chunk of it, I would say. And I really enjoy this title. And I think, you know what, I'm going off of memory here, but I want to say that the episode that I did about the New Avengers before, back in episode number 159, I want to say, if, if, if memory serves, that was part of my Brian Michael Bendis appreciation series, because Basically, Bendis puts up with a lot of crap from fans and and stuff. And there was a point, I think less so now, but there was a time when it was kind of a trendy thing to do to bash on Brian Michael Bendis, even for flaws that I don't really think he even has as a writer. But nevertheless, people would still do it. It was just, I don't want to go so far as to say it was like a hipster thing to do, but it was a very common thing, you know? And... So what I wanted to do, at least in that series, was, I guess, speak up for Bendis a little bit and uh, basically just try to get an idea of what it is that I enjoy about Bendis as a writer and then bring that across to you listeners, right? And I really enjoyed talking about the new Avengers in that episode, and so I decided that, you know what? Son of a bitch, the day's going to come when I'm going to circle back to the new Avengers, and here we are. It took a really long time. Obviously, it took a really long time. It took a hell of a long time, but I was finally able to find a way to uh, come back to the new Avengers and try to pick up where I left off before. And in relation to that, like I say, today I'm going to be talking about the new Avengers, volume one, number seven. Cover date is July of 2005. Cover price is $2.25. Can you guys believe that? $2.25. There was a time when comics, I mean, and I remember people even bitching and complaining about $2.25. Man, that's an arm and a leg. When you think about how much the the price of comics has increased just since 2005, like by percentages, that's fucking insane. So anyway, $2.25, that's the cover price. Cover uh, cover artists are David Finch, Danny Mickey, and uh, Frank how do you even pronounce this guy's name? Frank Darmada. Writer is Brian Michael Bendis. Penciler is Steve McNiven. Inker is Mark Morales. Colorist is Molly Hollowell. Letterers are Richard Starkings. And I'm going to do my best with this name. This guy is Albert. I think you would pronounce this Duquesne. D-E-S-C-H-E-S-N-E. So Duquesne, I guess. I don't know. And I'm not going to worry about it too much. 
Editors are Tom Brevoort, Stephanie Moore, Molly Laser, and Andy Schmidt. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. Story is entitled The Century Part 1. Story synopsis is as follows. While flying over New York City, Iron Man receives word from Spider-Woman that one of the raft fugitives that escaped in the storyline I talked about back in episode number 159, for anybody who's interested, that one of the raft fugitives popped up on the grid outside Long Island. She, uh, she tells him that the rest of the Avengers will head over uh, to handle the situation since Iron Man has a prior commitment. Tony goes offline as he arrives at the Funtime Inc. facility for a meeting of... The Illuminati. The other members of the secret organization known as the Illuminati begin questioning Tony about the uh, reformation of the Avengers. Tony explains that it happened only yesterday, meaning in comic book time, the day before, and he was actually coming over to, uh, to tell everybody about it at that moment. Doctor Strange, Mr. Fantastic, and Professor X are glad to hear the news and support Tony's decision. Namor is upset that the Illuminati were not told of the plans before they happened. For his own part, Black Bolt just doesn't really seem to care all that much. Iron Man explains that the new Avengers will be tracking down the fugitives from the raft incident. Doctor Strange mentions that he was attacked by the Crusader outside his house, so that's one less fugitive to have to worry about. Meanwhile, in Long Island, the Wrecker arrives at the house of Ed Gross, a man who bought his equipment in order to add it to his collection of supervillain costumes and gear, after he, meaning the Wrecker, was incarcerated. He threatens Mr. Gross's daughter into returning his accoutrements, which includes his crowbar. He then plans to use the woman as a hostage, but encounters the Avengers as he leaves the garage. The Wrecker sends Spider-Man, Luke Cage, and Wolverine flying as they attack him in turn, leaving only Spider-Woman alone to face the criminal. Elsewhere, in the Nevada desert, director Maria Hill has pinpointed, and by that I mean S.H.I.E.L.D. director Maria Hill, has pinpointed the location of Robert Reynolds, also known as the Sentry. Captain America and Iron Man approach the Sentry, who tells them to leave and says that the Void is coming and no one is safe because he, meaning the Sentry, has used his powers. Iron Man then brings in Lindy Reynolds, which is to say Robert's wife, who thought that he had died by his own hands, and also Paul Jenkins, a comic book writer who apparently created the Sentry. Iron Man then asks uh, Robert Reynolds, Who are you? To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, going literally from the top here, the, the cover, or at least the cover that I'm looking at, I'm not sure if this is the one that was actually used on the trade, but at least the cover that's on this issue that I have, it basically is sort of this glory shot of the new adventures. You've got a Spider-Woman in the center, and she's flanked on her right side by Iron Man, Spider-Man, and the Sentry. And on her left side is Captain America, Wolverine, and some other character whose name escapes me, but I think we see this character again later in the New Avengers, but I'm blanking on his name here. But anyway, it's this sort of generic sort of marching towards the camera shot that Michael Bay kind of specialized in. And what was that movie? Armageddon, I think. And so anyway, that's pretty much that. And I guess as covers go, I mean, 
Well, this one's pretty good. So anyway, the I guess the the opening splash page is so or actually no. The, what am I saying? This is not a this is not a splash page. It's uh it's basically that introduction page that says here's all the bullshit that happened before this issue, and it's got the logos and the credits and all that stuff, and it basically is. It basically apprises new readers of everything that's gone on before. And since I talked about all of that stuff back in episode number 159, there's probably not much reason to go through it here other than to say I just love this. I mean, as obvious a, a, an idea as this was, it always amazed me that, number one, it took as long to come up with as it did. And number two, that DC never really followed suit on this, you know, so I don't know. Whatever you guys think that's worth. But anyway, getting into the first page, and I'm sure I'm going to lose track of these page numbers before too long because they don't seem to want to number these pages anymore. But anyway, starting on the first page, we've basically got this opening little bit of Iron Man talking to uh, Spider-Woman. And as much as anything, I mean, b besides just kind of shooting the bull with one another, they really are providing some uh, plot exposition that... I suppose a new reader would need to know about. And this is just, this is one of those things that I've always thought Brian Michael Bendis does really well. You know, he has a way of making exposition sound kind of conversational, like this is the kind of stuff that people should be talking about. But when you really think about it, this really isn't the way that people talk to one another usually. Hey, how are things going at your job? You know, the one that you're thinking about quitting because your boss is a sexually freaky pervert or something like that. And you just hate going into his office at any time for any reason because he's such a freak. You know, that job. Like, how are things going there? Have you quit your job yet? Because you said that you were thinking about quitting. You know, it's like nobody really talks that way. You know, but you see stupid ass dialogue like that in comics all the time. And in the majority of cases, not always, but in the majority of cases... Bendis is good enough that he kind of sidesteps that stuff. And I don't know. It's just, it's really well done. And I don't think he really gets a whole lot of props for that. But I don't know if I should dwell too much about, uh, dwell too much on all of that stuff. Because I think I pretty much said everything I needed to say in terms of defending Bendis before. So I'm just going to move right along. The art here is really well done. Now, I need to say that the first time that I can really remember seeing Steve McNiven's art in a way that like stood out to me was actually the Civil War uh, limited series. And reading that, I just really dug Steve McNiven and his art, you know? And I guess, you know, one year can really make a lot of difference because the art that we see throughout the majority of this issue, it's, it's solid. It's incredibly well done. I enjoy it, but it's not quite as good as as it would be just a year later. So, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing that McNiven must have done a lot of improvements in the intervening year between uh, uh, this issue of the New Avengers, uh, number seven, and then the first issue of the Civil War Limited series. I mean, that's a lot of growth, you know? They're recognizable as the same artist, but the art from the Civil War Limited series, it's just better. I don't know how else to put it. It's just it's just better, you know? So, anyway. But what we get here, really well done. It's really solid. And, I, you know, there's a little cameo appearance of Spider-Man on uh, page one here. 
in the background behind Spider-Woman at the bottom of the page. And I just dig McNiven's take on Spider-Man. It's not quite Ditko, but you can see a little bit of a Ditko influence, especially on the mask and whatnot and the way that the the way that he draws uh, the webs on Spider-Man's costume. But this is definitely Steve McNiven's Spider-Man. You know, he's not copying uh, Ditko. You can just see the Ditko influence going on there. And I just, I, I like that too. So anyway, all of this is to say that I think McNiven and Bendis are actually a really solid team. You know, they, they really do work well together. And getting into, I guess this is pages three, <clears throat> Pages three and four. I don't know what happens the instant I start podcasting and that my throat go tr goes dry. But for some reason, the instant I start podcasting, fucking my throat goes dry. And I don't know why that is. But anyway, here we are. It's the hand I've been dealt. So anyway, um, getting into pages, uh, you know, three and four and really the, the meeting proper with the Illuminati. At the very top of the page, what you see is the members of the Illuminati turning to uh, they're sitting at the table and they turn to face. Iron Man as he comes through the door, and you see the astral projection of Doctor Strange, and he's sitting next to Mr. Fantastic, who is sitting next to Professor X, who is sitting next to Black Bolt, who is sitting next to Prince Namor, and Prince Namor is just about looking like somebody pissed all in his cornflakes, and, you know, the thing is, Namor is always written, you see, I wouldn't go so far as to say rude, but there's a confrontational edge to just about everything that Namor says or does. And you it's not overdone here. You get just enough to get the flavor of who Namor is, but he doesn't, but Bendis doesn't go overboard with it. You know, he doesn't sit there and give Namor page after laborious page of this kind of caustic and rude and hostile dialogue. Namor has three, maybe four, maybe five lines at most. But you understand from the outset, he's really not a people person, you know, which might beg the question of what exactly he's doing as a member of the Illuminati, except that as the king of Atlantis, you really can't have an organization like the Illuminati running around without somebody like Namor there to represent Atlantis. So that all makes sense to me. So anyway... Getting into the actual dialogue, though, this again, this is just really well done dialogue, I think, on Bendis's part, where Doctor Strange, Mr. Fantastic, and Professor X are, they're broadly supportive of the idea of bringing the Avengers back together, and they each, I guess they each express their support in different ways. Doctor Strange just says, good for you. Professor X says, I've spoken to Logan it's the right thing to do. And that to me is just, that's not exactly quintessential Professor X, but that is well-written Professor X because he's going to think of everything in terms of how this affects mutants or one particular mutant separate from everyone else. And it's the guy just never stops being a mutant ambassador. So in this case, it's about Logan. He's spoken to Logan. And so he, meaning Professor X, agrees that this is the right thing to do. So he's also being supportive of bringing back the Avengers. Then Mr. Fantastic asks, can you afford it? So in Mr. Fantastic's mind, it's not a matter of, is this a good idea or is it not? If he thought it was a bad idea, he'd just come right out and say so. He'd lead with that. But he asks instead more about, I guess, the, the vagaries of how the Avengers is supposed to be run. 
can this, like, is this affordable? And I don't know. I mean, it's just, this is a really well, without giving everybody basically identical dialogue saying, I think this is a good idea. They all express their support in kind, in different ways, but they are still expressing their support. I just, I, I like that. I think it's, I think that's really well done. So, and then there's uh, Namor who demands to know when they were going to be informed about all of this. And it's like, he just doesn't seem to realize this only just happened. So I was on my way here to inform you guys of all of this right now. When was I going to inform you guys? Right now. So for some reason, that's just, that's not going to cut it for, for Namor. He says, and when were we going to hear about all of these superpowered criminals that escaped out of surface world custody this week? How many was it? And the actual number is 46. But... I've known people like Namor, not, well, I don't mean like Kings of Atlantis, but I mean, I've known people like Namor my whole life. And for some reason, the only way that they can really, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I, I guess, I guess the only way that they can really um, express themselves is through confrontation. You know, even if there's nothing to argue about, you know, they have to find a way to turn everything into an argument or they have to turn it into a confrontation. You know, it's for some reason, it's just like the idea of just sitting down and calmly discussing whatever they have on their mind. I don't know why, but for some reason it's like that just doesn't sink in for them, I guess. And so anyway, and it's in a weird kind of way. I mean, this is, I guess everybody has to deal with, you know, office politics when you're at work, you know, what do you say? What do you not say? Or lacking that, at least, what do you not say to certain people? You know, and that's basically what we're seeing here. You know, nav uh, it's Iron Man basically navigating the rough waters of superhero office politics, you know, and whose egos aren't going to be ruffled and all of that stuff. And I just kind of like the idea of that because I kind of like the idea of the DC universe being sort of like, superheroes as gods whereas the marvel universe is i guess office worker bees having superpowers and the way that complicates their ordinary mundane lives you know and the problems that get introduced and this i mean i've always thought that the idea of superpowered characters existing in this world which is basically the real world that's always been marvel's shtick in one sense, but in another sense, it's like, it's like the world hasn't really adjusted to the fact that yes, superpowered people really do live here, you know? And so seeing more like mundane situations where basically what we're really seeing here is Tony navigating office politics. I kind of like that. It's just the twist is this is not normal office politics. This is superhero office politics. It's just it's something that's relatable mixed with something that's fantastic. It's when it's done well, it's always enjoyable when it's done poorly. Well, less enjoyable, I suppose. So anyway, moving right along, they, the Illuminati members basically talk about how best to, uh, manage the Avengers, you know, like what logistical difficulties go with having a team of Avengers running around. Are you going to rebuild Avengers mansion? Well, no, we're, I'm going to stash them in an empty office building that I have in downtown Manhattan because I can't seem to rent this out to anybody else, so the Avengers may as well use it. 
And, you know, is this affordable? You know, meaning is rebuilding the Avengers Mansion even affordable? Well, no. So that's the reason I'm going to have them headquartered in my office building, you know, and, and, you know, things like that, you know, basically, why is it that these characters are being headquartered in New York, rather than putting them in Chicago, or putting them in Los Angeles, or putting them in Dallas, or fucking wherever, you know, and the reality of that is, you know, these, the new Avengers team is made up of people that some of them, you know, I think we may want to keep them on a little bit of a short leash. Yeah, they're good at what they do, but we need to be able to keep an eye on them nevertheless. Wolverine, we're all pretty much looking right in your direction. So that that type of thing. And, you know, like I say, this again is basically m- more exposition, but it's exposition that's that's got a lot of character to it. And so because of that, it doesn't... It, I mean, I know that stuff like this is always a chore to write, but Bendis is good enough at what he does that it's it's rarely a chore to read. And to me, that makes all the difference. So anyway, Tony closes off at least what we see of the Illuminati uh, meeting by saying, that is what I wanted to talk to you about today. Who of you knows who the century is? Because we might have a really big problem here. And then we cut to... Uh, Ed Gross's uh, mansion. I, at least I assume this is a mansion. It looks kind of like a mansion. So hmm. anyway, but it's on Long Island. Do they even have mansions in, in, on Long Island? Well, whatever. Mine is not to reason why. Mine is but to do or die. So anyway, Ed Gross's daughter is out uh, is outside getting a tan when uh, the wrecker shows up and basically demands that he get his stuff back. So the daughter, who doesn't seem to have a name, uh, basically... She takes him into Ed Gross's, uh, uh, I guess, private trophy room, and we see costumes by, uh, or owned by, uh, uh, the ones I at least recognize are the Vulture, Scorpion, pieces of a Mysterio costume. Uh, Let's see, who else? Well, that's really all I can see on this page that looks recognizable to me, but you'll take what you can get and you can like, and you'll like it. So the Vulture, the Scorpion, Mysterio, and Shocker. And so the Wrecker breaks his stuff out of the this little gla- these glass cases, these display cases that house all of these different costumes. Picture the Robin display case in the Batcave, and that's basically what, what we're dealing with here. And this is kind of an interesting little hobby or subculture or, or however you want to look at it. It stands to reason that in a universe where superheroes are just part of day-to-day reality, you're going to have people out there who collect, who, who collect uh, superhuman paraphernalia. I mean, think about it in the real world. There are people out there who collect um, Soviet memorabilia or Nazi Germany memorabilia or stuff like that. Um, you know, we have, an in, we have entire museums dedicated to, um, uh, I guess, memorabilia, and leftovers from the Roman Empire. And you go to other places, you might find museums that have uh, Bonnie and Clyde's bullet-riddled car or Abraham Lincoln's, uh, the suit that he was wearing the night he was assassinated, uh, the car that JFK was riding around in when he was assassinated. You know, these little items of history that if you know where to look and if you're in the right place at the right time, you can see this stuff. And it stands to reason... That, you know, 
people have these things in their private collection. I mean, I what I'm told is that there are collectors all across the world that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in some cases, collecting uh, paintings that were done by Adolf Hitler, you know, and things like that, or private journals written by Ronald Reagan. And you can find, well, I say you can find it. You can find stories about people who have private collections like that. And it stands to reason to me to tie it all back. It stands to reason to me that, you know, the Marvel Universe isn't going to be any different. There are going to be people out there who have that sort of weird triangle, uh, triangular-shaped uh, Captain America shield or maybe, um, I don't know, pieces of an, uh, of an old Iron Man costume. Or for the supervillains, maybe they have um, fragments of costumes by Mysterio, by the Vulture, by... Uh, the Scorpion by uh, Shocker, you know, and characters like that, you know, there would be people out there who collect that stuff, you know, and to kind of give it a little bit of a dark edge, the daughter says that Ed Gross uh, puts these costumes on and acts out, quote unquote, events. So if you want to interpret that as kind of this one man historical reenactment, kind of like Civil War recreation battles, you can do that, but there's a kind of pervy side to that as well that I don't think we need to get into here. But you have an imagination, use it. Anyway, so from there, the Wrecker basically tries to uh, take the daughter hostage, but that's when the new Avengers get involved, and pretty much from there, all hell breaks loose. Because after that, you know, the Avengers arrive in their jet, and... At least to start with, you know, the first time I read this story, I thought, you know, the Wrecker, he's some kind of uh, Z-list, wannabe, nobody uh, supervillain. And he's not really a threat to anybody. When he talks trash about the time that he beat the crap out of all of the Avengers and beating the tar out of Thor because that's how he gets his kicks on a uh, Tuesday night, you know, stuff like that. You know, it's the first time I read this. I thought that that was just kind of, you know, standard issue, wannabe, supervillain, tough guy talk. That is, in fact, not really the case pretty much at all. The Wrecker is one tough SOB because he takes the best shots that Luke Cage gives him. I mean, Luke Cage probably uh, punches him, it looks like, three times. Spider-Man smashes him upside the head with a tricycle once. And it's like that that doesn't even slow the guy that doesn't even slow the record down first he sends wolverine flying off into the distance twice uh he takes the best shots that uh luke cage is capable of throwing he he doesn't even change expression then he smashes uh uh luke cage first into the jet and then smashes him into a parked car and cage isn't getting back up he sends spider-man flying around just whips him through the air He's basically doing a pretty good job of beating the tar out of the entire Avengers team all by himself. And the entire time that this stuff is going on, he's saying, Do you people not understand? I have the power of a god. You know, and yeah, again, this is kind of tough guy talk, but the guy is backing it up. I mean, he's kicking a lot of ass here, you know. And after he gets through beating the tar out of, First Wolverine, then Luke Cage, then Spider-Man. He turns his attention to Spider-Woman, who's all of a sudden probably feeling a little bit lonesome 
standing as she is all by herself as the only person left standing against the wrecker. And there's this moment at the bottom of that page where you can see uh, Jessica Drew. She's chewing on her lip and she's nervous. And guys, keep in mind, this guy's been in lockup for quite a while now. And he says, I really do like how you look in that costume, sweet cakes. And just think about that. You know, sexually, sexually harassing a superhero? Yikes. But then again, this guy did just beat the snot out of the entire Avengers team, so maybe he shouldn't be worried about what Spider-Woman might do to him for making pervy comments like that. You know, uh, I don't know. Anyway, but the reason I, uh, I'm kind of being a pain in the ass about this is because at the bottom of the page, you can see Jessica Drew. She's chewing on her lip. She's nervous. And, you know, this is just one of those tics and mannerisms that people do that's kind of hard to draw. You know, like, how do you show somebody being nervous? Well, I guess chewing their lip isn't really all that bad an idea, but that's not an easy thing to draw because how do you draw some, draw someone chewing their lip in a way that doesn't make the, make it look like they've got a deformed mouth or something like that. And I don't know, I guess McNiven has cracked the code here because Jessica Drew is chewing on her lip but it doesn't look like she's got a deformed mouth or something. It looks like she's fucking chewing on her lip. I don't know. It's just, it's a really, it's a really well done thing. I mean, there are certain things in comics that are just really hard to draw, like a movie poster that looks 2D. Well, you're drawing something that's 2D already. So how do you draw something that looks 2D in some, inside of something that looks 2D already? And that can be kind of hard to do. Or how do you draw a monster mask? Not a monster face, but a monster mask. How do you draw something that looks fake, you know? And a lot of artists really struggle with that, you know? Or those, like I say, those sort of, those, uh, that kind of fidgety stuff that, that, that people do when they get nervous. How do you draw that? Or at least how do you draw that in a way that doesn't make them look deformed in some way? Well, here again, McNiven has cracked the code because... The bottom of the page, like I keep saying, Jessica Drew is chewing on her lip and it looks really good. It looks like she's chewing on her lip, like she doesn't know what the hell to do now, you know? And so I just, I think this is really well done is the point. So anyway, getting back into the story though, we cut to the uh, Nevada desert where Maria Hill and her team of shield operatives are, uh, they're basically meeting up with Captain America and Iron Man and they're closing in on the Sentry. Now, if you've if your mission is to close in on the Sentry, which is to say an escaped fugitive, Iron Man and Captain America are probably the best guys to bring in because, number one, they're so stable. Number two, they're so powerful. And they're just all around the best choice. I mean, honestly, it might be tempting to want to wanna bring in the Hulk, except how do you control and contain the Hulk? I mean, God forbid a fight breaks out and the sentry turns violent. Yeah, the Hulk can take on the sentry, but the Hulk isn't necessarily watching out for your best interests, you know? How do you contain a situation like that? And so on the one hand, you know, just at a glance, the first time I was reading this, it seemed kind of weird. It's like, wow, really? These are the guys that you're bringing in? But then I started thinking about it. It's like, no, these are really the probably the only two guys in the entire Marvel universe that are on top of themselves well enough and strong enough, you know, powerful enough all around 
to have some kind of realistic shot of going toe-to-toe with the sentry and evacuating the area, getting everybody out alive, and not getting themselves killed in the process. So, yeah, these are pretty much the two guys you'd probably want to bring in. And the other thing is, I just like this Maria Hill costume. Or not, it's not even a costume. I guess it's a it's a uniform, this shield uniform she's got. It's this head-to-toe leather getup uh, get that she's wearing. And it just sort of reminds me of uh, Hush-era uh, Catwoman. And it's, like I say, she's got the, uh, the uh, head-to-toe leather going. And I don't know why, it just looks very Catwoman-y to me. And I just, I like this look for her, you know? Anyway, so the team, they make their way into the cave... And you get a little bit of an idea of who the sentry is and what his powers are, except that it's strange that first he he seems to be a real life flesh and blood person. He meets his real life flesh and blood wife, and then we uh, his creator Paul Jenkins, a comic book writer, the guy who created the sentry for the comics, is brought in, and it raises all sorts of questions about who and what the century is, and just what the fuck is going on around here. And honestly, I don't think I'm going to have time to get into that today, but there's there's actually a really elegant and, I think, creative story that's going on here that, that we're going to that, that uh, get to see. And I don't know. I just really enjoy this story. I really enjoy this title, The New Avengers. I enjoy this title. I enjoy this art. Steve McNiven is a badass. And it's, it's just, it's, it's really good. And so now as to the future, I'm not really sure when I'm going to get a chance to talk about new Avengers hope again. I mean, I'm hoping it's not going to take as long uh, as it took to come back to it after uh, episode number 159, because I mean, that's, that's a pretty, a a pretty long time to wait, but I'm hoping I'll be able to get back to it sooner. I just, I don't really have a solid idea on when that's going to be, but I do know that at some point, um, I am going to do it, you know, uh, basically as I check through my schedule though, it's just, eh, I don't know. It, we'll see is the point, but I am going to come back to this at some point or another. And of that, you can be sure. So anyway, but I think that's pretty much it for, uh, the new, well, actually, you know what? I say that there is actually one other note that I want to make about, uh, new Avengers, uh, number seven. And you know, that is just, I guess, how economical this issue is, because when you think about it, there's really only three scenes in this entire in this entire issue. You have the Illuminati meeting, you have uh, the Avengers battle with the Wrecker, and then you have these four pages with uh, the, uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. team meet, meeting up with uh, the Sentry in the cave in uh, Nevada, and then that's pretty much it. I mean, those are the really the three things that happen in this issue, but the I don't know the, the it, it doesn't feel like it's only three scenes in this issue. It feels as you read it, it feels like there's so much more going on, even though there really isn't. And so anyway, all around, I really enjoy this issue. It's got a lot of uh, fun characters. It's got a lot of fun action in it. It's got a lot of uh, I think really creative and inventive universe building that uh, that's going on you know with the collection of supervillain costumes and all that stuff and this storyline in general is just a ton of fun so all in all this issue is great this storyline is great this title is great so i recommend picking it up so whatever a recommendation from me is worth 
there you go. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, uh, what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to talk about another Marvel comic. I'm not really sure which one, but I am going to talk about another Marvel comic, so I guess keep an ear out for that, but that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. 
So if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>